0: Hello there, and as the sun breaks over Mount Summit I'd like to welcome you to the Brothers Bloom commentary track. My name is Ryan Johnson, I I wrote and directed the picture. To my left is the hairy and wonderful Mr. Rom Bergman. And I'm the real conman, the yes, producer. he's the producer, It's a man who <clears throat> actually steals money, I just spend it. So this first shot here, actually, with the sun popping up, that's an effect shot. And both this and the very last shot of the movie, which um, they kind of bookend it. They're visually exactly the same. Um, my cinematographer, Steve Yedlin, did in his laptop computer using Shake, actually. the very, It was a very last effect shot that, uh, that we finished for the movie. And Steve had some cool sky textures. So that's a, that's a home-baked shot right there. So this opening childhood sequence was the very first thing that I wrote, and it was the very last thing that we shot. I wrote it um, kind of as this little self-contained thing to start the story off and and give some context for the brothers and their relationship and kind of set a Rosetta Stone. That's my sister in the background sweeping, by the way, uh, on the left. And she was, uh, if you look in Brick, when Brendan goes backstage to search Kara's room, she's also sweeping in that the one-legged cat but i'm not sure how i can add anything to that with commentary a group of local well-off kids their pocket change anyway so it was the last thing we shot in the last five days of the shoot and uh we shot in belgrade and our production designer jim clay at the end of the shoot when we we're totally out of money and out the word money my head turns over to rom we were not out of money i just told you we were out of money son of a <laughs> seriously <laughs> seriously That's our editor's daughter, actually, Esme. Esme, uh, we were we were looking to cast. We had cast um, uh, we had cast the two brothers right there. We had cast Zachary Gordon and Max Records as as the two boys, and we flew them out from L.A. And then we were looking to cast the little girl, and we were looking at local girls in Belgrade, and we were looking at back in L.A. And then our my our editor Gabriel Ryan, his, his um. His lovely better half, Heather, they were obviously out there working with us and their kids were there. And, uh, you know, Esme was hanging out and we just kind of realized, ah, that's the girl. Anyway, I was saying this was shot in Belgrade and uh, our production designer, Jim Clay, was tasked with the impossible – task of uh, trying to create an American small town in the middle of Belgrade in Serbia. And he did a pretty incredible job, but in some of those main street scenes, if the camera moved like, you know, half a foot to the left or right, you would see a big imposing concrete communist block architecture thing (laughs) Uh, instead of a street. We really just shot like exactly what we had (laughs) set-wise. I guess I should mention another thing that I'm doing here. If I if I ever run out of stuff to say, I'm, I've asked people on Twitter. This is going to be the most dated technical reference. Of the, this is this would be as, as if on the brick commentary I had mentioned this crazy new thing Friendster that everybody's doing. This, in five years, this is just going to sound ridiculous. But the cool thing is, I ask people just questions of you know what they would like like answered about in the in the commentary track. So if I get bored or run out of stuff to say, which I might have already done. Um, I'm just going to glance down at my computer and uh, give some shout-outs to some people. Like a butterfly. A willowess? That's right. It guides The opening thing is narrated by Mr. Mr. Ricky Jay, who, uh, who I've been a fan of for years and years and years. Um, Ricky, uh, a lot of people know him as an actor. He's in a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson stuff and David Mamet's films. But Ricky's also a card magician. He's also, though, kind of a scholar of the con game and of eccentric entertainments and of basically everything cool in the universe um, Ricky knows everything about. And if you haven't been exposed to his work, I I would say look up a book called uh, Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women. It's a good place to start. But i had been a fan of ricky's through his magic and through his books going back years and years and um uh, a very good friend of mine from college mr mr dan sheridan used to be ricky's assistant for years and so through dan i was able to kind of um get a slightly creepy fan type foot in the door in terms of re- meeting ricky a little getting to know him a little bit and then when i wrote this movie um, it's hard to make a con man movie and, and not uh, have Ricky involved somehow. You kind of, legally, I think you kind of have to. I had originally written the part of the curator, uh, which we were, for Ricky, but he was unable to travel out to Eastern Europe, and we were lucky enough to get Robbie Coltrane in that part, so um, ended up asking him to narrate it. Uh, The original weird idea I'd had was to have Bob Dylan do the narration for it, but I completely chickened out. That's my mom, dead center, right there. Hi, Mom. Uh, I completely chickened out on being in a booth this size with Bob Dylan. It's intimidating enough being here with Rom.
1: Continue, please.
0: You're yakking my ear off. I'm not getting a chance to say a single word. You're driving me crazy. We should take it on the road, me and you. I think we're good. Uh, yeah, I think people would mainly come see me, not you. I agree. <laughs> well, you're the beauty. I'm the, I'm the Twitterer.
1: How does it feel?
0: This song that's about to start up. This is a uh, our our music supervisor Brian Reitzel found um, found this song. Originally, this was the live version of um, The Mighty Quinn by Dylan off of, the, uh, um, off of the Self-Portrait album, and that's what I had tempted in there forever, um, but it just it didn't feel like it quite had the energy to launch us into this, and Brian found this live version of I'm Losing You, which is performed here by uh, Faces. And uh, this is from, I think, a BBC session that they did. And it just had this raucous energy. And the second that Nathan Johnson, the composer, and I heard it... ...we, we knew this was the, the way to carry it home. It was very costly, I would just <laughs> remind you. It's true, actually. The, the music clearances are a terrible. It's, first of all, it's a terrible process. And the music clearances, because you aren't dealing with the artist, you're dealing with the artist's lawyer or their estate or their their men in suits often. And it's ridiculously expensive.
1: Yeah, especially when you have it on the
0: main titles, which is... Really? Does that cost more? Yeah, significantly more. See, I'm learning stuff in the commentary track. That's good. Uh, This was an old... This location was a very old house. It was just outside of Belgrade. If I'm remembering correctly. And this house was real... We didn't do a lot to it, except set it on fire. Um, this house kind of just looked like this when we stepped into it. Jim Clay, create, our production designer, created that bookshelf in the background... ...and the books are made out of ceramic. That's for the money. Uh, ceramic material so that they, uh, we could light them on fire over and over again. Although, the bookshelf itself was not. The bookshelf was wood. And you can see in this shot coming up right here... It really is sagging in the middle, and we are all a little bit nervous... ...that all those ceramic books were going to come crashing down on top of Adrian... Um, ...because then we wouldn't be able to keep filming, and Adrian would have been dead, which would not have been
1: good. You will not be able to do it in the States. (laughs) In Serbia, we can get away with stuff. (laughs) Uh, Wow is the word you're looking for. Wow. You're a genius, Stephen. We're a genius, Bloom.
0: Mr. Mark Ruffalo. I, I actually, uh, th- actually, this, I, I, don't know if this is interesting or just a quagmire to talk about this little section of explanation here about how they pulled off this con originally came in the scene that's a little bit later with Nora um, Zahedner... when bloom is talking to her and playing solitaire originally he explained this to her then um but it seemed like it flowed better to uh to get this going here he even phonetically matched my this of insert shot um of this actress and basically any shot nearly any shot in the movie that doesn't have the main actors in it um and this is something that i guess it you know not many people who are watching a movie are aware of, and I wasn't completely aware of the extent of it. Um, That stuff is shot by another crew. That's shot by a second unit. We had an amazing second unit um, cinematographer, uh, Jaron Pressant, who worked with um, uh, Alexander DeWitt, who came in and helped with some of the action stuff. And uh, and Jaron basically shot a huge amount of the exterior establishing shots and insert shots and shots like that with the other actress and did a ton of, of shooting on the movie. And that's a challenging thing, because you're going off with basically a tiny little crew and trying to recreate and match what we're doing with a crew of like, you know, a hundred people and, and a ton of equipment and lights. And Jaron did a pretty fantastic job. There's Rom, Bergman, it's Rom it's i believe credited as himself can you talk a little around about your performance there and about your uh, how you got into the it was
1: least, literally the worst day of my life <laughs> uh, i'll say nothing more <laughs> and ryan made me do it
0: i uh, did not beg for the part did i forced you it's terrible it's awful <laughs> it's like, <laughs> seriously it's the worst day uh, yeah it's pretty awful uh, this is a track from Eight and a Half from uh, Nina Rose's score for eight and a half. And the scene from eight and a half it's from is a dancing scene also, so it felt right to uh, Noah Segan right there, credited as the Duke. There's actually there's a couple besides Noah and you caught a glimpse um, of some other brick actors in there. Can we
1: just can you just tell him that I begged you not to have that scene in the movie? No, no. It's not I true. begged you.
0: You begged me to put you in the movie somewhere and it got embarrassing at some point even likes to talk about you tell you the cave story that brick actor this is the lovely Noras a head nerd. And like I said earlier you saw Noah Segan and um, the idea was kind of that this was the uh, the con the the rap party for the previous con so we worked in all the people that we could from the previous movie into it because we're so goddamn clever that was his name Yep. Yeah. and he was your mentor. It a little insert shot we shot after the fact. This was because we mentioned the Diamond Dog here and then he doesn't show up until later, we actually expanded that little explanation of hers a little bit after the fact. And this is a set, again, that Jim Clay created kind of out of nothing. We did not have a ton of money to work with considering the fact that we... Never repeat a location, yeah, nearly never repeat a location. And nearly every other location is supposed to be some crazy, spectacular, different end of the earth. And uh, Jim did a pretty phenomenal job of doing a lot with a very little, with very little. And the other trick was to, to as much as we could, find existing places uh, and dress them as opposed to building, building sets. There weren't a lot of sets that we actually built and the only major build was the theater at the end which we'll talk more about later there's noah lying passed out on the stairs there which i don't think people often see and if you look in the left there's the brick symbol on the on the wall a shout out. That was the wall was something that we had a local graffiti artist or a local artist in Belgrade draw but it was designed by my cousin Zach Johnson who also did all the hand drawn little uh, uh, introduction cards. All the zoo stuff another example of uh, we just sent Jaron out with a, with a camera and told him shoot some wacky animals.
1: Hold I must make peace.
0: That camel was surprisingly on. I was shocked at how, cause this scene took like, you know, the whole afternoon to shoot. And then it was like the last 10 minutes of the day and we had like 10 minutes of light left. And then we bring in the camel and we're like, okay, there's, the camel has to walk up at the end of this scene, pick up the flask and drink from it. There's no possible way. We're going to have to create a cartoon camel in a in a computing-type device. We're going to have to use a computing-type device.
1: Only in Serbia you're going to
0: get good camels. It's the best camels in uh, in Serbia. Yeah, I'll be... The, the camel... Nowhere else in the world... Take it would one. Take one. Yeah, take one. The camel walks up, picks up the flask, gulps it down, <laughs> drops the flask, gives a self-satisfied look right in the camera that just says, you know... I nailed it. Right here, this is, and then
1: that's my new favorite camel.
0: <laughs> we cut out before it, but right after he drops the flask, he literally—the camel gave this little look right into the lens, and then strutted off. And Mark and Adrian were just sitting there, like shaking their heads, like one take on the camel. Uh, I can't. I can't. Can't wake up next to another person. This was in Belgrade, this was just outside of Belgrade. I'm
1: thirty five years old. I don't I, I, I'm I'm useless, crippled. I don't I've only ever lived life through these roles that aren't me. That are written for me by you.
0: Being outside, we had to deal with weather. It's the kind of inside information you get when you listen to a director talking over a movie for two hours. Uh Rom, would you like to talk about the weather that we No we started in late in the winter,
1: so we encountered bad weather, which, luckily, as we progressed, improved. But, you know, you can't afford not shooting. It's raining,
0: it's whatever you shoot. You kind of cross your fingers that it'll line up with the senior shooting. Like this, I was really ex- excited, for example, that this was an overcast day, because uh, there was no way we could, like, not shoot. Our schedule was really tight, We we couldn't, like, pull at days of heaven and just sit out there waiting for the exact right thing you just have to you gotta shoot man i like this musical cue a lot and so i'm gonna this i'm gonna talk a little bit about nathan who did the score um nathan johnson we he's my cousin um this is in montenegro for real actually although this was a tiny little island and that's actually a little church up on top of it um, which was a pretty amazing location, but it was, it was completely isolated. Sorry, Nathan, I'll get back to you. Yeah, it was completely isolated. Um, we had to actually build a dock on that little island in order to land our boats on it and get out to it. And while we were out there shooting, a storm came up. And it was like Gilligan's Island. We were all trapped on that little island because no boats would approach the island because of the waves. And so we were all huddled against the rocks for in, like three hours. And the catering guy fell to the water. Remember That's that? right. <laughs> was, our first AD was, was uh, it, it was actually, they were leaving this dock to go. You can see in the background the dock that leads out to the island. They were leaving that dock, the last boat out, and the waves were huge. And uh, they were getting all the stuff. And our first AD, who's um, Sean Guest, he's this huge um, British man who looks like a Viking and uh, the catering guy was running out to him with the salt and pepper. I think. Yes. Like they had yes. all the, the food aboard the boat, and then the catering guy was Mr. Sean, Mr. Sean, the salt and pepper, and he like ran to give him the salt and pepper, and mm-hmm. plunk went right in the right in the drink. There's a little. There's a, one of our effect shots. So this uh, this these opening little cartoon things I mentioned before were done by Zach Johnson. <laughs> Uh, who's Nathan Johnson's the composer's brother, and both of them are my cousin um, cousins. We keep uh, keep in the family. And Zach did that. He also did Stephen's notebook, which we cut to a couple times in the movie, in which I actually it's one of my favorite objects that I own. It's it's he basically Zach spent a few weeks in Belgrade just filling out this entire Molskin notebook with uh, notes from Stephen, basically. What is that? Duck. These chapter headings were put in pretty late in the game. Actually, it was pretty—it was an addition near the end of the cutting process um, to try and give it just like a little bit more structure and give us a sense of of what was happening in the con. This is in Romania, this location, and this is. Rom, you can probably help me get the story. It's the
1: king's castle.
0: It's the king's castle, like his hunting lodge. But he was the king was exiled to Germany. For a certain amount of time, which is why it's this ridiculous faux German hunting lodge. It's just it's you drive out into the middle of the countryside in Romania and this small town. It was uh the town was Sinai, right? Yeah. Sinai, and it's 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 just there. It was this incredible place.
1: No women.
0: Lamborghini enthusiasts. That was a styrofoam wall that we crashed the Lamborghini into, so no Lamborghinis were actually hurt during the creation of this picture except when you were driving one. except when i oh <laughs> so i was so we can take a second and tell us a little story we were on this set we were on this at this location and i, I had to go to um, to the piddle room i had to go to to, to the wee man's room and uh, which was at base camp which is a short drive away an eccentric and so I was just gonna, I was gonna walk back there, and the stunt guy like points to the Lamborghini and says, "I'll give you a ride." And uh, there's the Lambo right there. And so we get in, and he takes me up to the straightaway road, and and guns it, and I've it feels like a rocket ship going off, and I scream like a little girl, and it's fantastic. And then while he's driving back, all of a sudden we hear this boom, as if which sounds as if we've crashed into a tree, but we're just driving along the road, and. We get out and we look, and the front fender of the Lambo is demolished. And what has happened is we ran over a brick that was sitting in the middle of the road that was about three or four inches high. And because there is zero clearance on the Lamborghini, it completely shredded the front bumper of this. And the, the stunt guy, his face just went completely white. And I realized I just I totally got him busted. I felt like I was in high school and we had, like, taken my friend's, like, mom's car out and then dented it or something. We were just, we were in trouble. you got to sum up your sleeve. This is it's Belgrade. This is in the beautiful Hotel Yugoslavia, right? Yes. And they were tearing it down, and we sequestered the top floor of it before they tore it, tore it down to make a casino and, and built this little uh, New Jersey New Jersey I've set.
1: been able to give you what you really wanted. This isn't going to give me what I want.
0: I started to talk about Nathan and the music a little bit and got sidetracked. You can hear Nathan tooling away on the piano in the background here. Nathan, he's my cousin. We've been making movies together since I was 10. Actually, if you pause that frame right there, you can see the plot of the movie. That actually is the the con. They're going to pull on her all the way up to Mexico, plotted out. So you can you can see the plot of it. I think what I'm gonna do is start talking about Nathan, and they get inter- interrupted. For that'll be like the ongoing joke <laughs> for the rest of. And it'll be hilarious. Get big laughs. This is this is Romania. This,
1: this is this is where Raffalo made me very nervous.
0: Yeah, why don't you tell that story, Rom?
1: No, no, you tell it better. No, 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 go ahead.
0: <laughs> I'm so sick of my own voice at this point, that's true. I'm
1: sick of my accent, so go
0: <laughs> You have an accent? <laughs> no, nah,
1: not now, really. No, tell
0: the story about Mark and the Mark, go ahead.
1: No, no, they should see the scene <laughs> and enjoy it better than hear my voice.
0: <laughs> okay, so <laughs> we were, you, you bastard, so we, okay, so we were on this location, which is this huge hill, and uh, obviously, and in between takes, well, I guess I should explain, first of all, the actors are insured on this on, on a shoot, basically. You have to get an actor insured, because if something happens to the actor during the shoot... ...you've lost the, a lot of people, a lot of money, basically, so... You act to this if you're trying to fast-track into a mark. In between takes, we look, all of a sudden I'm talking to Rom... ...and um, I'm facing down the hill, he's facing up the hill... ...and I see his face go white, and I turn around... ...and Mark is barreling down the hill on the bicycle in between takes, and I've never seen Rom scream that loud in my life. When Adrian flew over the hood of the car, it, there was an effect. We comped him into that, but we actually, to have him fly across, we actually just did set up some pads and have him jump in front of the camera, which I didn't think was going to work, but DP, Steve Yedlin, he, Said we were figuring all these wire rigs and stuff and fancy stuff to get them to fly across frame, and Steve just said, "Why don't you just have them take a flying leap?" We figured, sure.
1: Go back. Finish the story. What story? The Raffalo story.
0: That was basically it. Uh, oh, you tell me if there was more. No, I was screaming at Raffalo. I will sue you. <laughs> That's
1: right. I will sue you. That's
0: right. I. Don't know. <laughs> Rinko Kikuchi, a comic moment right there. So Rinko, you know, I think, I think most people probably know her from Babel. Um, and she would played a incredibly dramatic part in, in Babel, pretty heartbreaking role. And uh, So I was I was pretty shocked when I sat down and met her. I, I never would have recognized her from that film. Because she's in Babel, somehow they managed to kind of, uh, you know, they managed to make her not look like a runway model somehow. And you sit down and meet her, and she's just absolutely stunning and really... um, She's also, the interesting thing is she actually started in Japan. She cut her teeth doing comedies in Japan. So um, she actually has an incredible sense of comic timing. And I had a moment of silence there for the butt that was for uh william goss right there uh i i was uh, i actually had written the role of bang bang originally with the idea of it being like a Harpa marx type character and with their, it being a non-verbal character that was as strong a character as anything else as anybody else in the movie hook part of the reason i did that was because uh, I tend to lean on dialogue too much, and so I wanted to have one character where I couldn't write any dialogue and I still had to think about what that character would be doing and then Rinko, the fact that she was actually excited about doing a character with no lines instead of wondering where the hell her part was on the page um I knew I'd found a you know I knew she was going to be a good collaborator. This scene was a was a biatch. this was hard to cut together because i messed up when we were shooting it smell uh, we shot basically we we shot adrian's side of the scene first Um, and then we we shot him reacting to to what rachel was supposed to be doing in the script and then we turned around and, and shot rachel's side and while we were shooting rachel's side the way that she was reacting to adrian it didn't really work and so it changed and we adjusted and we came up with this thing of her kind of dozing off problem is we had already shot Adrienne reacting to something that she what, was now not doing. So in the editing, I, this was probably the scene that we recut the most because we basically had to take A and B and make C. And um, there was a lot of manipulation that went on. And actually those little snoring noises that she makes that was at the very last minute of the sound mix, I think we actually pulled the receptionist from Sonic Magic, from our, our sound place, into the, into the booth and had her make those little snoring noise. I think I tried it first and it sounded too masculine. It's like, there's no way that's a girl snoring. That's, he's too manly. Right, Rom?
1: Yes. You should tell them that you probably cut a lot of the snoring that were in the movie. Cut a lot of the what? The snoring in the movie. All the snoring scenes. Was that a joke? No. All the Rachel scenes. What do you mean? All the storyline about Rachel's character.
0: Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Wow. We cut a lot out of this movie. Here's the hobby montage, which... uh, Mr. James Rokey. From on from uh, both from from Twitter and from uh, film film writer extraordinaire has asked that I go into the symbolism and the uh, of of this hobby montage in depth. So besides revealing that I actually don't know how to don't know if I'm pronouncing James Roki's last name correctly, I'm also not going to answer his question. So there you go, James. Take that. There's Twitter interacting with the commentary. So lame. Kinda sad. Kinda sad indeed. Rachel was the very first How you plan to actor enjoy? to sign on I don't know. I'm not to Brothers planner. Bloom. I just do stuff. Like, That's a scary thing for an actor to do because they have no other point of reference except for the script and and me, which um it's pretty terrifying. Um, I thought of Rachel because she actually this these these two close-ups of this scene. Originally, we had shot this scene where she talks about the pinhole camera in one big long shot. Um, it was like a one take thing. The fabric or your Rachel during the course of the rest of the shoot, she just she, she it kept coming up in her mind, and she kept talking to me about just feeling like we didn't really we didn't really get it. And this scene was really important to her when she talks about. Um, you know talks about the pinhole camera and the watermelon, so we uh at the very end of the shoot we just we grabbed a corner of the set, we set up that little couch, and we shot those two little close up shots of them the a about a More it tells you less you know she kind of saved my butt in terms of the way the scene plays I and mean, she uh she 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 knew that uh that it needed that, and I'm really glad we did that. But anyway, she it, The she saved my butt in terms of the entire movie because the character Penelope is some is something that could have easily been just a sum of all these quirks. I think when a character is that insane, there's the danger that you know, there's a danger that it's just going to turn into pure wackiness, I guess. Um, and he, really, it takes a actor of the caliber of 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 rachel to to put something behind that and to and to weirdly ground it and to um, make it feel like a real living breathing person that's an incredibly hard thing to do and i'm 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 pretty amazed every time i watch the movie through and see how how rachel has accomplished it i meet a lot of
1: people in my job i have to professionally act interested
0: i think i mentioned before there was um You know, Rom mentioned the snoring thing. There was this little thing where every time Rachel fell asleep, she would be snoring. Are you leaving? There was kind of an ongoing gag, but there was a ton of stuff in the movie that we ended up cutting. Coming back? There's even... There's a lot of stuff near the end of the film especially, Um, but little scenes and little moments, and um, uh, here's the blush coming up right here. Paris and Greece, I think. Little scenes, little moments, and and that's something which I feel like... um, yeah, you know, this is, this is my, my my second film, and for me, this was a, a, a the big lesson of it was in the editing and just how brutal you have to be, how much the degree to which you have to kind of let go of your ego when you get in the cutting room. And you know, you when you write the script, you have this notion in your head of what the movie is and how it's going to feel and what's going to be. And to a certain extent, when you get in the editing room. You have, to, you have to let that go. You have to um, find what the material wants to be now. Um, because now all these other incredibly talented people have come in and done their own thing with it. And what you had in mind originally is, is um, you know, there, it has something to do with it, but it can't be the be-all, end-all. So it, it was really a matter of kind of finding how the thing itself wanted to play. And that means losing a lot of stuff, and sometimes a lot of stuff that you really like. This is Romania, and looking at the boat is Montenegro. That's true, yeah. This was a split country. When you're looking back at Adrian in that previous scene, it's, it's Romania. When you're looking at Mark on the boat, it's Montenegro because we couldn't get the boat all the way down to, to Romania. This was uh, in Romania in um, Costanza, right? Yeah. This is the smelliest port in the world. This port smelled like... When we first got there, there was literally 8 inches of a, a mixture of bird poop... And Dead Bird. Probably the worst location we've ever been in. It was real. But it's beautiful. The makeup artist was not happy when he came <laughs> at 4 o'clock in the morning on a trailer that wasn't a real trailer. Graham. Yeah. Uh, and this is, this is it's called the Fidel in the movie. And there's another one of Zach's drawings. In real life, this is the Delphine. And this boat, we were on this boat for a week. And it is a work of art, this boat. Um Basically, it was it was built by I don't know if I'll get the history completely right, but it was built by the Dodge family, if I'm remembering correctly, in, in Michigan. Yes. Yeah, back in like 19 around 1910 or so, and um, like any boat that survived an entire century, it's uh, it's got a crazy history. It was you know. At some point it was uh, sequestered by the military and they, they ripped the guts out of it and put a huge gun on it and at some point it was you know sunk to the bottom of Lake Michigan and and, and then fairly recently it was it was raised up and it was completely it was completely restored uh, based on original blueprints and photos by, um, by a French lady who uh, now rents it out to, to royalty and let us. Slum upon it.
1: It's probably our most expensive set other than yep. the theater in the movie, yep. in terms of what it cost us to get that boat.
0: I like this moment that Rachel does here where we kind of just let it roll and roll and roll. And uh, although that's also my least favorite thing that happens in commentary tracks where the director, suddenly it just kind of devolves into the director just saying, I like how that door opens. And here she's playing with the cards. I remember shooting this scene at night. So the costume that she's wearing right there, that's a uh, um, tuxedo. And originally we were kind of trying to come up with a dress for her, and Rachel came up with the idea of of, um, being much more plain and much more kind of masculine within just doing a tuxedo. Our uh, costume designer was Miss um, Beatrix Pasteur and she's um, an incredibly talented woman. She did um, the thing on her resume that made my eyes bug out was the Fisher King that she did but she um, she's done a lot of incredible things she worked with Gus Van Sands and um, and uh, it was a tricky thing with the costumes with this movie because we got to have a lot of fun with it because it's highly stylized. But at the same time, we, uh, you know, blending with the background costumes I think was the biggest challenge in a way. Um, because we didn't want it to feel period. We wanted it to We wanted to kind of straddle that line where it, it felt like it was its own time and place. Where it felt like it was this story that Stephen was creating, basically. But at the same time, you know, you couldn't have too big a contrast. between, And so it, it ended up being this... this this game of figuring out how to dress people in the background versus um, keeping the costumes in a place where they were fun and playful, but yet couldn't be pinned down to a specific period. Rachel learned this card trick and did it. This is there is no trickery besides what she's doing with her hands going on in this scene at all. There's no um, camera effects or anything. This is just her doing this card trick. I think this was take eleven. And I'm pretty amazed every time I watch it because she she is actually giving that long and involved monologue while she's doing this, and it's kind of like patting your belly and rubbing your head at the same time. And the mirror, Steve, our deep my DP, Steve worked out. Um, he you know worked it all out uh, in terms of the angle of how the camera would have to come in and where the mirror would have to be set up and we just we he figured it all out and we just did it live and then her face showed up in the mirror it was it was um it's kind of incredible
1: wasn't all I'll hobby acquiring ever. i'm
0: not sure if rachel's wearing her talking about the costume i I don't know if she's wearing her boots in this scene. I don't th- I think this might be one of the few scenes in the movie where she's not where she's wearing proper lady shoes. but she had these boots that were actually hers. Every time we were figuring out what shoes to put with an outfit, we would come back to the boots and they didn't fit in a way, but that's kind of what made them fit. And she has said that's kind of what made her find the essence of kind of the weird the weird awkwardness and yet comfortable, in her own skin type vibe of her character was those big clunky boots that she's chunking around in for for most of the film
1: Pardon, but, uh, you noir sur le pont, uh, Mr.
0: Robbie Coltrane right here who was kind enough to to come out to uh the far ends of the earth to to do this little poirot style style scene Robbie's also a very big well he's a um uh, I think he's a mostly a, a car enthusiast, isn't he? He
1: is he knows everything. Hes, he's I think one everything. Of the, yeah, I think one of the reasons he took the job is because he knew we were going to be on the Delphine.
0: <laughs> well, the delphine has a has a steam engine, a working steam engine. It's actually a steamboat. And the engine underneath it's this incredible, huge steam engine that aficionados of of that sort of thing will will travel across the world to see. And so Robbie was kind of um Robbie was kind of in heaven. It was hard to bring him to the boat and take him off the boat every yeah. night. Yeah, poor guy. Just had a knee surgery. Oh, that's right. He had a knee surgery and we were staying in this magnificent hotel on top of this cliff in uh, Montenegro where we were shooting this stuff. And we, we pull up to, to the hotel and there's just endless stairs going up the ho- to the hotel. We had to find him another hotel to stay in, actually. The clouds in the ocean here were put in after the fact, but uh, but we were actually out on the sea at night shooting this. This wasn't, like, in a, on a stage or a big green screen or anything like that. And that's one of the nice things about not having a ton of money. Like, we, we actually had to go to these places, you know? I mean, we uh, couldn't afford to build... Build a huge set. We actually were, but the effect of that, which I think is a fantastic thing, is when you're shooting a scene where you're dancing on the moonlit deck of a beautiful steamership out in the middle of the sea at night, you are actually on the moonlit deck of a beautiful steamership out in the sea at night, and that it helps the actors get into it, and you know it also just makes the experience something that's that's more memorable. Member, bubble for everybody.
1: The ship's too small for us to be dancing around each other. We might as well have this off now. Penelope, do you know our? Um, I grew
0: up making movies with my friends. That's how I. That's how I learned how to make films. And so, it was about making movies and getting better at making movies. It was also about you know having fun over a weekend and hanging out with people that, you know, hanging out with friends with people that we liked and about the experience of it. And that's something that even as, I think, I hope especially as, you know, it's, the budget got bigger from brick to this, that was something I was really focused on, on keeping and on having it still feel like, you know, we're a group of friends picking up a camera and making a movie. You have to make that a priority, and you have to keep that in your head the whole time while you're um, when, when things start getting tough around day 35 or 40 of the shoot. But if you do, it, it makes it... A, Maybe it makes it a better movie on the screen, maybe not, I don't know, but it makes it a better experience while you're shooting it, and really, you know, that's that's just as important as anything, I think.
1: You know, the mademoiselle, she seems a little confused. Maybe she is unaware... All those uh, boat scenes were shot uh, off Montenegro.
0: Yeah, that's Montenegro in the background. And I feel like that, again, that looks like it's a green screen comp, but it's not, we're actually... That's... that's that's it. We're actually right there.
1: We've been on the straight for 3 years. So that's that. Oh, oh, wait. So we here
0: have all our major actors together here. Nearly all of them except for Max. Oh. Your name's Melville. Seeing how they all play off of each other, it's kind of a it's kind of a relief because we you, the way it works with casting, you you it's a long, drawn-out process. It took nearly a year to get the, the entire cast for this movie together, um, just because there's a lot of logistic stuff with schedules, and there's a lot of stuff that goes into making all the pieces fit into place. And then you cast everybody separately, and I had met with them all separately, but the first time that they are all put in a room together is, is a week before you start shooting, or a few weeks before you start shooting out in, out in Belgrade. And so you just kind of you hire great people, and you just... You, you cross your fingers that they're going to click when they come together. Mine? Uh, Stephen always loved You know, and the fact that we were out in these far-flung places, I think, really helped because everyone wasn't going home at night, you know? They were all it, would, it had the summer camp effect. For reason.
1: Have at me, you headed
0: bastard! That's Montenegro, guy. too, right? That guy is a funny guy. Funny? <laughs> I think he actually, uh... I don't want to. Yeah, I, I choose my words carefully. I think I think we typecasted the uh, the large man who looks like he could kill us. <laughs> because he could. He, he could actually. He was, but, he, was, he was doing it for a living. He was a big guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so anyway, you 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 kind of roll the dice casting wise and just hope. And and everyone did end up. Um, Everyone ended up clicking, and everyone ended up getting along, thank God, because we were kind of uh, out in the thick of it for a long while. This is... Eh, this Rinko. Anytime Rinko gets a little moment, I really like it.
1: She's different. She, she knows.
0: The other aspect of this was, you know, we... When I wrote the script, it had all these locations all set across Europe. One of the things that makes Ram a good producer is he, you know, I was very concerned that we'd be able to afford shooting this while we were, while I was writing it. And you remember what you said to me, Rom?
1: Just write don't limit just write the best script. We will figure out a way how to
0: shoot it. Don't worry, just write the script so I mean that's that's a good that's a really good producer right there. And so we were then though at the end of the day, we had this script that was set all across Europe. We had to figure out a way to shoot it. And this is where the true genius of Ron Bergman comes in. I would have to agree.
1: <laughs> do Don't fall in love with the bloom.
0: We based ourselves in Belgrade, and then it's a matter of... When you're scouting the locations, it's almost similar to casting. And in, in that, you you know, it, it ends up being... Uh, not exactly what you expected but in some cases it surprises you and ends up being better in terms of these places that end up filling in for these locations that you had you know in your mind when you were in the script this is montenegro again so it becomes this fun game of figuring out what you can make work work where and again jim clay our production designer just did a phenomenal job of uh, of figuring out how to how to make very limited resources spread out and feel like we were going on this around-the-world track. In Prague and sells them off through smugglers. Those little zooms right there were done by, by Jaron Prasant, our second unit guy again, and he was up at the crack of dawn on the rooftops in Prague every single morning for like a week shooting those things, so... Thanks, Jaren. I'll sell it to a middleman for one million U.S. and then. Even while we were like here, we were in Montenegro, but we're, we're based in Belgrade, in Serbia, and our our crew was was mainly Serbian. They were mainly our a Belgrade crew. We brought in a lot of the key positions from the states and from uh, England, from England, but um, the majority of the crew was was Serb. Come on. It was an interesting thing to watch happen the way that the the key crew and by key crew I mean like the production designer or the first A D, basically the people who head up the different departments. Seeing them and the local crew, the local Belgrade crew and seeing like the cultural differences work their work their ways out just in terms of the way people work, because a film set is a, a really well oiled Machine and and every culture has really specific stuff. An English film crew has a has a different way of going about things than an American film crew. Specifics of it, when you say them, they sound they sound kind of silly when you first hear them. Like you know the fact that you know grips will a grip will set up a C stand, but an electrician then has to put the light on top of it, and that sounds so specific to where it's ridiculous. The thing that you have to keep in mind though, there's there's a reason for that, and it actually makes sense when you get down to it. When you're putting together a film crew, you're basically – imagine renting an office full of people who have to show up and on the very first minute of the very first day work absolutely perfectly together to accomplish this very complicated task. Um, There's no ramp-up period at all. They have to just click into place and they have to do their jobs perfectly and everyone has to know what everyone else is doing as well as what they're doing. And so in that way, everyone kind of does have to be perfectly shaped gears in this machine that just pop into place and start turning. So that's where the specificity of all the different credits that you see at the end of a movie ends up working well and coming into place. It tends to be an interesting situation when... You have slightly different shaped gears. People are just wor- used to working in different ways, coming together. And at the beginning of it, there was some confusion back and forth, but by the end of the shoot, everyone just loved each other. And I know that some of the, you know, some of the key guys have actually uh, um, continued to work with some of the some of the Belgrade crew that they had. They've, they've brought them out for other jobs. Um, so it ended up working out.
1: Also, the thing, the unique thing we did is we actually took the Serb crew with us to all the other countries. Yeah. To Prague or to Romania, which is something that you usually don't do, just because you know we worked so well together and everyone knew each other, so we just took a charter plane mm-hmm. and took it to all the other countries and brought all the Serb crew with us. I highly suggest you stay far away from me and my brother. Stop. Affectionately, etc.
0: This train is uh, Tito's train. Tito was the president of Yugoslavia from uh, World War II until his death in, in, the, in the 80s, I believe, right? Yeah. And uh, this was his, his private train, and it was uh, um, kind of a big deal that we got to get on it and shoot. It was just gorgeous Gorgeous train. The actual vibe of the train, which I don't think you really get from from what we shot here, we we made it look a little bit more Orient Express than it is. In in real life, it has this more kind of like a Doctor Strangelove type feel, that like that funky '60s sort of, you know, uh, the high tech in the '60s kind of communist block sort of feel to it, with the big plastic green telephones and the slightly funky television sets set into the walls and. In, the,
1: in his claim, you know, basically they're saying that the people he hosted were Arafat
0: and Brezhnev. That's like in the... What's that? That's what Tito, Tito. Was on the train? Those are the people
1: he hosted in there.
0: There you go. It was also they used the train for his uh, for his funeral procession also. They used it to bring they his did. body. I think so, yeah. If they didn't, then Mila's going to kick my butt. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> we're saying
1: that. Uh, the Prague thing, Prague locations. Yeah, we will when we get yeah, to Prague.
0: Probably more than the Tito train. The train we shot, it's always a big question how you shoot on a train, because it's kind of a logistic nightmare if you actually take the train out and shoot with it. But I, I was very opposed to the idea of doing green screen and, and comping, because I feel like it always looks like... A green screen shot when you do it, but that's what we ended up doing at the end of the day. And um, I had come up with all these elaborate ideas of actually building a physical thing outside the window that would roll by and doing it kind of like that. But at the end of the day, it was just too complicated. And um, we had a, we were lucky enough to have a really great effects supervisor, um, Ron Simonson, who was able to pull off the comp well. So how do you feel about it in hindsight? Would you do it again? Which way? No, I still wish that we had done the work and figured out a more creative way to to do it that would have been a little more visually stylized we wouldn't have just been a green screen comp because the complex great it's a really good comp but it still is just what you do when you're but knowing how long
1: it takes to do a movie and to shoot to come up with a more creative way you still think
0: yeah no i uh, still i still wish that and that's one of the things i'm writing the the sci-fi movie right now that's one of the things i'm already thinking about is how we're gonna plan the effect i think there's just this automatic Uh, thing in movies these days that the effects are something that's handled by somebody else after the fact. And I think that's, I think that ends up leading to, um, I don't know, leading to subpar effects. I think if the the effects should be something that the director has his head around as much as anything else in the film. And that was another thing that I dealt with for the first time on Bloom and kind of learned a bit. Cash?
1: No. Only movie thugs and Russians deal in suitcases of Cash? you're going to get a certified
0: check. So we're here in Prague, which was uh, 90% of our (laughs) pre-production work. Trying to get the two key locations here, and we literally scheduled our
1: entire schedule of the movie based on when we were able to access, you know, two locations for literally a total of about a day, maybe, not even a day. And that's how we scheduled the movie.
0: Yeah, it was basically the Charles Bridge and shooting in St. Vitus Cathedral in the castle.
1: So, uh, This
0: is my favorite set in the entire film. Um, Jim Clay... This is in Belgrade, though? Yeah, this is in Belgrade. Jim Clay built this beautiful set in this space, and it's gorgeous. It's full of all this amazing detail. The sad thing is, and this is said for a few reasons, there was an entire second half to this scene. There's a whole thing, which hopefully will be in the deleted scenes, I hope. There was a whole scene where as they're leaving, Robbie's character um, tells them about this painting of a well, and it actually becomes a very emotional scene. And it takes place in this beautiful space, and Robbie gives this incredible emotional performance. The problem was it stopped the movie. It stopped the movie in its tracks. And that's what I liked about it initially, because the whole notion was all of a sudden this plot grinds to a halt and you have this genuine emotional scene which you don't know whether it's real or not but it's emotionally affecting regardless but it it was something that I really liked thematically but it's something where it was a huge mistake on my part as a writer director I should have known in the script phase that it was an indulgence and that it, it ...wasn't going to work actually in the film. I should have cut it at the script phase, honestly. It's it's one of the big mistakes I feel like I made on the film. And I feel bad that Robbie gave this incredible performance in it... ...and it ended up not being, uh... ...not making the cut. This is a beautiful shot now coming. This is, uh... The main old square in Prague. This is another one of those locations. And this is one also where we kind of just had to... There's a thin layer of our people masking a huge swarm of tourists in the background. And so this became a game. Our first AD, Sean Guest, was was an artist at uh, arranging background extras. It's incredible, actually, how he's using a couple people who are in our costumes here to mask hundreds of people who are in sweatpants and property of KGB tourist T-shirts. It, it, it really is an incredibly specific thing. The hats in the movie is kind of a hat movie. That's something that we became aware of halfway through it when all of a sudden it became an issue whether we are going to have hats in any given scene. And it
1: was before we start shooting. We yeah. were already mean, you
0: know, we're already talking about it. Yeah, yeah, the hats. Well, here's Mr. Maximilian Schell. It's the diamond dog. Who I think, out of all the actors, I know I was the most nervous of prospect of working with with Mr. Schell. And I also, uh, I made a horrible faux pas, Fox Paz. I made a terrible Fox Paz. The first night he was in Belgrade and we were having dinner, I, having grown up in the 80s, uh, the first thing I blurted out was that I had loved him in the black hole. That's the first. Maximilian Schell, compliment his work in the black hole. First thing out of my mouth. Set the tone for the relationship. Mr. Schell was actually a real real sweetheart, and he was a really... He's he's so creatively active right now he's directing directing operas he's getting a he's directing his own face pretty getting a film together he's he's he puts me to shame in terms of the amount of creative work that he's that he's got going on at once that he's still doing and when he showed up to do this relatively small part in this in this relatively small movie the amount that he 100 percent was into it it wasn't like he was showing up for a day and just doing his thing he spent an entire day kind of working on his costume and then it was important to him that it wasn't too goofy, so we actually took a stroll around the streets of Prague with him in full costume to make sure that people weren't just, like, pointing and laughing and that it, he kind of was was believable enough to be, you know, uh, that he didn't look totally insane. I don't know if it says more about the costume or about Prague that he was able to walk through the streets without people um, just pointing at him and, and gawking. But he was uh, he really... Uh, I know, it was important to get somebody who had um, had his gravity, I guess, because the character does just show up and has to kind of instantly have that. There's there's not a lot of time to develop... to develop, uh, you know, the the impact that this character has had on Bloom's life and, and what he's supposed to make Bloom feel. So you gotta get Maximilian Shell. But not you. You were so passive, paralyzed. This is a warning,
1: Bloom, and an offer. This scene is another scene you labored a lot on.
0: This is a long, a lot of cutting with this scene because originally there was a much stronger undertone of some indication of of sexual abuse in in their past, which ended up feeling too too overbearing and too too heavy. And just it, it was it was just too too thick it was too much and so I ended up really massaging that scene, so to speak, uh, in terms of how much he puts his hand on his knee, how much he you know uh, ex- exactly it came down to like the number of frames that, that he he had his hand on his knee and you end up getting down to really technical little details with the end in sight of of what kind of emotional impact the. These cuts are gonna have on the audience, and where they're gonna, where it's gonna lead the audience's mind. I guess, you know.
1: I'm sorry I wasn't there. Can't always
0: be there. Yeah, I guess I can't. Zach Johnson did uh, did that little drawing there, and this that that location that we shot. And here's another sunrise sh- shot that Jaron was up at the crack of dawn to get. This right here is a um, give you an idea of what we built and what was there. This is the the lobby of the Aeronautics Club in uh, Belgrade, and basically we had this location of this the top of this beautiful staircase, and then Jim Clay built that doorway.
1: Oh, he's gone, that's for sure. Or
0: here, for example, this was just kind of an empty space. We brought in the Wardrobe and Jim built that um, that wooden piece that kind of separates the room. This is the this is a, the same location that uh, was the Belgrade was the Belgian's apartment earlier on. Oh
1: well, back to antiquing.
0: Yeah, you can see the costumes a little bit better here. The costumes are really something. We uh, you know, feel like I've done the costumes justice talking about them. The costumes were something we spent a lot of time planning out in terms of the little details, and there's there's plenty of stuff that's happening in terms of the 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 color coding of the costumes and how, if you if you if you look at the colors that the people are wearing at different points in the film in relation to the colors that other characters are wearing, and you see how we try to indicate how the people are connecting or not connecting through the course of it, which is something that. Uh, um, I first started noticing, and I remember somebody... I I, I think a film professor pointed out to me in Casablanca, I think, there was a scene where Bogart was wearing a striped tie, and then the suit that, uh, that Ingrid Bergman was wearing came down and it looked like a striped tie. And I thought, cool.
1: Well, we'd have to clear the administrative offices, some sort of, um...
0: Bang Bang is blowing up Barbie dolls in this next scene. And I, I just... it seemed right to me that she would hate the notion of, of Barbie dolls and, and kind of want any excuse she could to... to blow them up.
1: She's an artist of nitroglycerin. It's kind of this, we
0: did not anticipate that it would be raining on this day. <laughs> yeah, it
1: was an ugly day.
0: Especially because we were in the middle of a quarry that was basically a big mud pit. And um, it was kind of a last-minute decision to, to bring that bulldozer in, just because we were kind of in this endless field of mud. And we had no idea what to do to visually make the scene work, and we had used the bulldozer to put that big pipe that they're behind up on top of that hill. And then at the last minute while we were figuring it out, we just decided the bulldozer was actually more visually interesting and the yellow matches the yellow that she was wearing. and. Um, and so we, we pulled it in and stuck her in the bulldozer. In in the this is a set. That little thing right there in the bottom that's supposed to be what they're using to plan out their heist is actually a model of... The set that they're going to be doing the, the heist in, we just grabbed it out of the production designer's office just because it made sense that, you know, uh, it's the story within a story. Oh, minutes ...to get through
1: the access hatch into the catacombs.
0: But this is another one of our few sets, These the interior of these hotel rooms. Um, this is something Jim Clay built in Belgrade. For some reason. We actually built the majority of our sets, and the majority of our sets in Belgrade in a big cold storage facility, um, which was awful for sound. It wasn't a sound stage. We called it a "what the hell was that sound stage?" is the thing was what we referred it to because you drop a wrench on the other side of the, of the warehouse, and you, the take would be ruined. Um, it would. It was. It was pretty terrible. At actually. the
1: time we were filming, there was not really. Big sound stages in Belgrade. Right. So we had to find a big warehouse where we built most of our sets you know, that we used for the
0: last week of filming. Mm. This kiss scene was something that Rachel and I started talking about way before the mo- uh, before we started shooting in, in pre-production, and um, the notion was that we would uh, kind of see her entire uh, sexual development that would usually take place from pre-adolescence up until adulthood through the course compressed into this into this one into this one kiss basically in the script i'm actually going to going to open up the the script here so in the script the way this was written is she kisses him he kisses her back the pure wholehearted sensuality with which they attack each other and the deluge of almost childlike need let loose in this one simple act Quickly reaches the point where as a viewer we no longer feel comfortable intruding with our gaze. Fifteen seconds after this point, we fade out. So it was kind of originally a a more – I don't know. There's no way visually to shoot that. So basically it's a nice paragraph but we kind of then had to figure out what the scene was going to be. And the idea that this kissing scene would be like a dialogue scene that would have an arc of its own and that would – the little, in, little beats, we worked out every individual little beat. We really rehearsed that kissing scene as if we were rehearsing a dialogue scene. Except it was kissing. Everybody loves kissing. There was originally a little thing in there where Mark knocks on the door in Adrian's room, which is next door to Rachel's, and Adrian has to scamper out and across the led, window ledge and run back into his room in time, um, but it didn't really work. So this is one of those locations here that we... This dude on the left, that guy who just went by, okay. He, sh- we did not do any... We, that guy showed up looking like that. And you have to pause the DVD at that point because he is in a blue suit with blue sunglasses wearing a $100 bill tie. And in the middle of Prague, that man showed up ready for work as one of the extras. And so we, we stuck him in front of the camera because he was just too amazing. This might have been the most miserable location that we were in the whole time, actually. This was, this, we didn't do a single thing to this. This is actually the attic of the building across from Prague Castle, Um, this little sniffing moment. Uh, It's fun to watch with an audience because it doesn't get like an immediate laugh, but there's a kind of a rolling laugh as people wonder if that's actually what they think is happening. Anyway, this location was miserable. It was dusty, it was smelly, and it looks beautiful on film. Steve... ...beautifully shot it, but it, it was really an awful, awful day. Um, and we were all coughing and hacking and uh, pretty sick by the end of it, actually. I think I might get sued after this. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. He, gets, that's my goal, is to get you sued by the end of the comic. I Great. want someone to run in at near the end of the commentary track... ...with a memo to you that the lawyer's on the phone. Uh, when we blew up Prague Castle, we... we, we uh, here's a little bit of movie insider magic for you. We did not actually blow up Prague Castle. The way we did that was there was we built like a thirty-foot-tall chunk of it. Can we not talk about it because I don't think they know
1: that we were supposed to blow up the Prague Castle. Otherwise, we would not get the rights to shoot
0: there. In that case, disregard yeah. what I just said about yeah. blowing up Prague I don't Castle. I want to get sued again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Corn, <laughs> beef. Corn beef. Da-da. So these next couple shots coming up here were nearly a year of work by our production staff negotiating with uh, the government, with the local Prague government. That is, all that debris right there is added in with computer, but the car is not. And the fact that that square is empty is pretty miraculous, because that's one of the... Key tourist uh, locations in Prague, and that's just swarmed with tourists. And the fact that they let us actually block off that entire square for just like half an hour to shoot that um, was a big, big deal. It
1: Literally took us a year to negotiate and pay a lot of money. And this is where the president sits, and it's the main tourist yeah. place.
0: Yeah, it's it's not it's it's not. Ju- I guess I should make it clear. It's not just a tourist place. It actually is where they're working government is, actually. It's yeah. where their offices are. That door she runs past is, uh... Um, you know, is, is, is actually the door to the president's office. And this uh, is the other tough location, this Charles was, Bridge. Yeah, this was the other big one right here, this, this scene. And a lot of those people on the bridge right there are tourists. And this is... We could only pull this off by having an AD, an assistant director, who is six and a half feet tall and looks like a Viking, because he, he bellowed at this group of tourists for them to not look at the camera and everyone look at the castle. And all these tourists did. They just, they did what Sean said, which is a wise policy.
1: They basically gave us the bridge, to lock the bridge for two hours between like 5 a.m. and 7 Mm a.m. And after that, they opened it. So that was shot after they opened it.
0: Yeah, and the scenes coming up where the cars are coming down and where she comes out, those were shot when we actually had control of the bridge. But all this stuff, there were tourists swarming and we had control of just this immediate area where the camera is pointed but if you if you've ever been to prague you know it's it's like disneyland i mean there's just th- just thousands of tourists and so it, it was uh it was it, like a holiday yeah yeah it was and it became a game of this was uh, Jim Clay built this set, and originally the idea was it would be much... Originally we thought it was going to be much more Bugs Bunny-ish. We, we had constructed this very flimsy vent that was actually going to bulge out, you know, the way that when Bugs Bunny is tunneling underground, like the, the bulge rises up. It was actually going to be expanding as she went through it. And it was going to be this complicated thing, which probably wouldn't have really worked. And then we just realized it was funnier just to kind of vaguely see her, see the st- stunt woman denting against the... This actor right here, he was he was he was Czech. We actually cast him locally, um, because he had to speak speak Czech to Rachel. And he came in and gave a nice little really dry moment there. He did a great job. Uh, so this is the shot right here where this is like six thirty in the morning and again, if you've been to Prague in the summertime, the fact that this bridge is is clear is it's a miracle. It's pretty huge. Yeah. I mean you see this bridge used a lot in like car commercials, but for something with the, the budget that we had for our movie, it just it was a lot of work, a lot of shoe leather to, uh, on the part of our production staff to make that happen. Rachel, I guess, actually had something that she came up with, which was the thing that she told the chief of police in order to get out of the castle. So at some point, she had come up with what she had told him to bamboozle her way out of the castle, but she never told me what it was. So you're going to have to ask Rachel Weiss. The next time you see her, I um, can just give everyone a number. Oh yeah, I hear when I have it in my phone. Let me read it to you. It's uh, yeah, I I thought I had it in my phone. I can't. I don't. I left it on my computer. I'll we'll we'll drop it in them later. <laughs> this was uh, when we were doing the temp score. That's it, I like that shot. When you're doing the temp score, this was actually a piece of uh, sweet... Uh, ...to Judy Blue Eyes by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Dude, oh, I can't sing it. <laughs> the DVD guys shake their heads. No! Oh, the license from David Crosby. I could ask her. And again, this is another thing where we're right in the middle of the, the main square. There's a thin... Just the the first layer of people walking by are our costume people, and then there are throngs of actual tourists behind them uh, in sweatshirts. And this is just a a matter of camouflage. And my friend uh, Jamie Nichols right behind Adrian to the right. Hi, Jamie. Guess I'll take my time. This is a location right over Prague. And the scene also, as long as we're giving shout-outs, features my father as the apple cart vendor in a show-stopping performance by Mr. Craig Johnson, right there. Hi, Dad. This scene was always conceived to this song, uh, to Miles from Nowhere, Uh, and this ended up being a real battle royale in terms of trying to license the song uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, When he walks by and the apple disappears, that was actually just our, our... a prop guy, Dave Fisher, was was tucked underneath the apple cart, and he perfectly reached up and grabbed the apple while Adrian walked by, actually. And then this little kid was, was from Prague. He was a Czech kid. And my dad shouts, thief, stop thief in Czech, which he surprised us all with. I think he learned that we had to put him in the credits if he said a line. And so he learned how to say stop thief and check and shouted it out and so my father folks yeah. an apple again this is the local this is a university actually um and this we did absolutely nothing to we just came in and found this hallway and shot it and here on the train so I'm going to talk about this set just a little bit. Jim Clay actually but this is on the train, but Jim Clay built this little enclosure here that is the sleeping car And the scene previously, the, the being there scene where she's having the moment during the thunderstorm. This, however, is actually on the Delphine, and this is actually what the bedrooms look like, the staterooms on the Delphine, which is pretty pretty swanky. Not Mexico. This is Montenegro, actually. Mexico. No, nope, Montenegro. Liar.
1: Okay, we're rendezvousing with the Argentina guys here on an isolated. We're coming
0: up in, in Mexico to uh, in a in a moment here. <laughs> For some reason, Rinko in the background just snoozing always cracks me up. She had a tough job. She did. Look at her. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I, I like that uh, Mexico that kills I don't
1: like me to simplistically vilify an entire country, but Mexico is a horrible place.
0: We're coming up to um Adrian in a white suit in Mexico, and then there's, we to destroy a few more Barbie dolls first. But this big, big yak hair. A coat, and then Adrian wearing this white suit, and, and this big blazing orange dress that Rachel's wearing. It kind of it, it's any of these things, um, kind of out of the context of the film, I think would 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 look completely ridiculous. And it's a testament to the work of Beatrix um, that that she created and. It, that the sum total of all of them put together forms some kind of um, some kind of reality that you buy, I guess, because you know these are this is not stuff that people actually walk around wearing, but but by, by this point in the movie, you've been lulled into this sense of the world. <laughs> This little flashback of the girl was something I stuck in pretty late in the game just to kind of give a little hint of what was going on in Bloom's head. It felt like the sequence as a whole kind of needed a little grounding in terms of what was happening. And that was a plastic tree on a hinge that we were able to reset between every take actually. There was originally a longer scene here where where Mark yelled at Adrian a little bit more and told him kind of to get off of his ass, but uh, it ended up going.
1: That scene was completely different. I mean, the next scene.
0: Which one? Oh, yeah, no, I'll talk about that in a second. This is uh, out here on Mexico. I mean, this is a nice magic hour shot, which is kind of the the very last part of the day when the light is just beautiful like that. But Steve and I, our, my DP and I, spent a lot of time figuring out how to shoot this because the beach at night, there's just kind of nothing going on out there. It's just black. And then... Um, Actually, every night I was going back to my, um, to my room at the end of every shooting day, and there were two movies I kept watching over and over just to keep myself visually grounded in what we were doing. And one of them was The Conformist, and the other was Eight and a Half. And then Eight and a Half, there's a scene where they're out. They go out to visit the, the film set at night. They, they're just blasting all these movie lights into the camera and creating all these flares. And so that's where Steve and I came up with the idea of having these uh, just having these lights kind of flaring the lens out. Um, a smaller scale, obviously, than what Mr. Fellini pulled off.
1: I don't want the money. Let's just go.
0: And then, in terms of the conformist, the visual reference of that—I mean, that was more about what the camera is doing. And there were a couple things. First of all, because we were shooting in these amazing environments, one of the things I wanted to look at. Because I think Bertolucci does it better than anyone is is using the camera so that you feel these environments in a very three dimensional way, and whenever the camera moves, it's very deliberate, and um, it gives you a sense of of the space that you're in in a, in an immediate way, and also slightly wider compositions and just kind of taking in the panorama and making the whole thing feel a little bit like um, your your head is inside that notebook that Steven is drawing, and in in a, in a way that's both heightened and kind of uh, I don't know heightened, but at the same time, very much grounds you in the space that that you're in. And so, the Conformist was kind of the the go-to visual reference on that. But for some reason, the the, the visual thing that people keep bringing up, maybe just because it's comedy and because it's on because it's kind of shot with wider compositions, is Wes Anderson's movies, which I love the way his movies look. But he, he has such a specific way that he he shoots it, I I don't see it so much in in bloom, but uh, for me it was more about, um, yeah, more about Bertolucci. So Bertolucci is a fun word to say. Ron, why don't you say Bertolucci a few times? I'm not going to give you the pleasure. No, come on. No, no I actually really now want to hear you say the word Bertolucci. I'll say it better than you. Come on.
1: Bertolucci. (laughs) (laughs) The,
0: I'm asking the guys in the booth. Can the rest of the commentary track just be Rom saying the word Birdly? They're nodding and giving a thumbs up. The answer is yes. Yeah, I'm not getting paid enough for this.
1: <laughs> but in my story, you don't get the money or the sunset or the girl.
0: Blue. This scene actually um, is was interesting. And this we we this was a. The exterior of this beach house we actually shot inside that this wasn't a different set we're actually out on the beach here that's why you can see the lights leading back to the hotel and the hotel in the background this was the actual environment (laughs) this scene coming up here where they fool her was completely different in it's actually exactly different in the script in the script they actually fool her and she and Bloom, Stephen here gets shot. Bloom goes to Stephen and is cradling him and says, "You know, you should, you should." It says to Penelope that he's staying with his brother, and then Penelope leaves. And then we revealed that Stephen pulls the thing out of his shirt, and they fooled him. But Bloom has has lost. You know, this the 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 potential love of Penelope. And we shot it that way, actually. But, but while we were setting up this shot right here, actually, while they were getting all the lights in place, um, I remember just thinking there was something not quite right about it. The way that Rachel had, had played the character up to that point, it felt like it felt wrong that she would fall for this. It felt completely wrong that she would fall for this. And so while we were setting up the camera for this shot, I came up with the notion of having her go up to them and and pull the thing out and and discover that it was actually um, that it's fake and it just it, we shot it both ways and in the original cut actually I used the original ending I used her going out and it just it was you know so much better to and felt so much in, more in character to have her come up like this and uh, <laughs> like how Mark's still trying to play it off he's going for the Shakespearean the Shakespearean uh, death knell, I I was
1: very skeptical when you shot it, and I said, there's no way you're gonna use this alt thing. Yeah, yeah. There's no way it's gonna work, and
0: actually worked great. Oh, does that mean you were, what's the word? I was wrong. Oh, that's that's so Only once. Only once.
1: (laughs) So you should listen to me
0: more. Really? You know who else, uh, you know who else was barely ever wrong? Who? Bertolucci. Uh. Who? Who was barely ever wrong, Rom?
1: Bertie is my favorite director.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and she goes off down the, the sunlit path. And there's, there's lots of little things, like there's a um, that orange dress that she's wearing. Oh, and actually, if you look very closely during the beginning of this scene, you can see Rinko, depending on how bright your television is. Renko's standing back there in the shadows for the entire scene leading up to this point. And if you're looking for her, you can actually see her during the course of it. And then we're into the karaoke. We
1: sold that house for $5,000. Did we? Yeah.
0: Really? God, the housing market today. past. peace last. I Moment of silence for Miss Kikuchi giving her karaoke debut. This was a club in Belgrade called Magasin right here. And all the all the Brits on the crew who were madmen, for some reason, the Brits are the party people on the crew. Like, they would go out till four in the morning every single night and then be up at like, you know, six in the morning for a crew call and working completely like nothing was there. I have no idea how they do it. But I found out about halfway through the shoot they were going to this club and basically um, uh, telling them the telling the people at the club that they were me, using using my name as the director of the movie. To... And so I actually went in there one day with them, one night with them uh, and uh, you know the guy looked at our first AD and said, "Mr. Johnson, your table, your regular tables ready? Cuz that's the kind of pull I have in Belgrade. He used to yeah. come yeah. Not anymore. Uh, we didn't actually blow up that house. That was, again, a combination of miniature and some very good effects work by Ron Simonson and his crew. And this whole sequence here was very much shuffled around. i right. we'll get into that a little bit more in the other section of the DVD where we talk about deleted scenes.
1: We
0: bang, bang, there's the little details which I'm not sure anyone would ever read. The fact that, um, just the fact that the boat that... Uh, Stephen originally comes in as red and the boat that she got picked up in there is white. And originally there was a shot that mirrored the one where Stephen's riding out to the islands and and it was uh, Penelope coming in the white boat. And that's a reference to the dog's line later on about red and white. And there's kind of a red and white theme running through the whole thing, which no one will ever notice if I hadn't been a... <clears throat> Pretentious director.
1: I'm this out. scene was entirely raining. It we was raining when we were shooting.
0: Yeah, it was raining on the actors while we were shooting. You can't really tell, but um, they're slowly getting soaked as they're as they're playing the scene out. Which comes back to exactly how lucky lucky we were to have actors who were totally cool, <laughs> real troopers. Because I can I can. There were so many points of this shoot where I probably should have had chairs thrown at my head by irate actors, and these guys, um, they were just completely about. Uh, totally about the work, man.
1: I was just playing you as a mark. You have to remember we were traveling for almost like three months between Serbia and Montenegro and mm-hmm. I mean literally within those countries we were moving every day and the conditions were not great and Rachel yeah. was a young mother, That's so true.
0: yeah, they were all great. Composition-wise, those two close-ups, that's the, the type of thing that I'm, I'm thinking about when you get into a location you work with it. The fact that behind her is the wide open beach and behind him is a blocked off stone wall. That's the kind of stuff where you come in and... and just as a very background thought, as a something which, unless the director's pretentious enough to point out in the commentary, you wouldn't directly notice it, but has, I hope, like a, a background psychological effect, and that's something that uh, there's there's some element of that in every single close-up, that um, uh, the plan of the characters, what's behind them has something to do with what they're, what they're talking about. are talking believe everything you said, so she'd never want
1: to see me again. Get her away from all this for
0: good. And this scene originally, actually, this little flashback... ...originally played out in real time, like, right after they came out of the... ...right after the the beach house scene earlier. And it was very late in the game that I intercut it with this kiss. Very late in the game. It might have been one of the very last editing things that that Gabriel and I did.
1: You want to tell me what I'm doing? You knew she'd come back.
0: This scene also was kind of a... kind of a beast. Because this is a real pivotal scene. After Mexico is done, there's a version of the movie that, that could have ended with that kiss that we saw right there. There's kind of like the, you know, um, or it had some kind of like Dirty Ron Scoundrels type twist at the end of Mexico. That's That's probably where you know, on some level you would expect... Uh, a con man movie with the tone of what you've seen up to this point to to end with and it was really important to me and it was a a big decision that i made at some point that no we're going to play out this last part of the movie where it it gets a little darker and kind of the point of it is that the the plot completely falls apart and that um, the wheels fall off the wagon to some degree and that to the point where the plot almost disintegrates and goes away um, by the end of it and that it, on one level I know is is um, because it's such a non-traditional payoff to a genre that you have very set audience expectations to on the one level it's kind of frustrating on the o- other level it's it's frustrating exactly the way that you know it, it's meant to be because you're, you're it's it's done in order to get you to the place that Bloom gets by the end of it, which is feeling kind of lost at sea and feeling in the, to the point where, he is actually broken out of this cycle of of cute little stories that are happening over and over anyway it was it's it's something that um i know on a first viewing experience is kind of one of the first things that people notice or it it catches out the fact that this last section of the movie feels like it undergoes a real tonal shift i think if the film as a whole it's something that to me at least was really essential something that uh i hope with uh I don't know. As the film lives on, hopefully, I hope it, uh... I think it makes it a more satisfying film in the long run. My boys. And Mr. Max is back right here. This was an incredible hotel. Hotel Moscow in Prague. Hotel Moscow in Prague. This is where... Like the Politburo would come and stay when they were visiting Prague, and this was like the hotel. And it, again, it had this funky '60s Kubrick-type feel to it that was just pretty incredible. We did we did basically nothing to this hotel set design-wise. This is just exactly the way that it looked.
1: I have thought this through. Believe me, and we can't end it without him.
0: Mark Ruffalo. I like this moment with Mark. When I first sat down with Mark, actually, I think we were... I think we sat down to talk about the role of Bloom, actually. And, and, and when I sat down with him, Mark is kind of known for, for these dark, intense characters he plays on the screen. And when you sit down with him, he's exactly the opposite of that in real life. He's not an, a brooding guy. He's kind of a, a big, you know, Italian family man. He's uh, kind of a hug-everybody-in-the-room type guy. And his energy in real life felt much more like Stephen. And to me it was it was much more interesting to take somebody with the vulnerability of Mark as opposed to, I guess, on the page Stephen could, could very easily read as, as being played by someone like, you know, um, like a master of the universe type, you know, like someone like George Clooney who could come in and just kind of be that guy. And it was much more interesting to me to have Mark come in who has a certain amount of, you know, who has that kind of vulnerability and has that slightly off-centeredness. And to have him then be the big showman who's pulling all the strings, uh, I thought that seemed a little more interesting. In the same way that Rachel playing this kind of goofy character, whereas Rachel is knowing that Rachel was a very strong, a very strong uh, dramatic actor, was part of what made me so confident putting her in in this goofy comedy part. Because I knew I knew she could do the comedy. I also though knew that she could ground the character um and similar same with same with Adrian as well you know the the funnier and and goofier it is and with Adrian specifically you know when we first meet bloom he's uh in a pretty low place and you need an actor who can who can be in that place and yet uh somehow earn it <laughs> you know who can you buy it from and for some reason Adrian he just he shows up on screen and you buy his pathos, I guess, um, without it feeling put up, without it feeling put on. he he can tap into that gravity really well. This sequence, this is one of the most complicated. Sequences in the whole, in the whole film. And it's a lot of different little pieces, each of which was meticulously planned out and put together. Every single shot in this was um, boarded really specifically. And because it was all shot very separately, everything where you don't see the actors was shot out on the highway by our second unit crew, just based on my storyboards. And everything where you see the actors was shot in a... the sawed-off half of one of these cars, the Ladas, in Belgrade. And so it was... um, it was a matter of getting every single little piece that you see in here specifically, and then pasting it all together, and hoping that it all that it all works in the end. But for me, that's with action sequences specifically. That's that's. Uh, I don't know. I think there's kind of a, maybe a tendency these days to put the camera on a 300 millimeter lens and and shake it around, and then chop it up, and that's how you get an action sequence to feel engaging and kinetic. Uh, and for me, the. Action sequences that I love are, you know, if you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, where there's a real choreography to it, or you know, John Woo's films or Hong Kong action films in general from uh, from that period. There's there's a there's a choreography and there's also a real, you know, they knew what the camera is doing and why the camera was doing it and it all fit together like a like a puzzle, you know. Out! Get out! Get out! Get out! Car explosions were always fun, basically. It's not a huge trick to them. The effects guys just load them up with gasoline and light them on fire. That one that we just saw was a little tricky because the actors were actually leaping away from the car. So we had to they had to have a lot of a trust in our effects guys. But luckily, our, our effects guys were pretty fantastic and, and had earned that trust at the end of the day. And since we couldn't afford stuntmen, we put the real actors. Is you know, <laughs> that true? Yeah? yeah I, <laughs> Who's got him? Nathan Johnson is my cousin who did the music. Have I mentioned that? And his score uh, in the back half of this kind of turned... Oh, here's Rinko in her hat. Let's talk about the hats. Uh, the hats and the moot... <laughs> Sorry, Nathan. No, okay, I'm actually going to talk about Nathan now. Nathan... Uh, the, he did the score to Brick, which was the um, the first film that we did together, and um, that score, the cues, the initial cue that I gave him with that score was um, to listen to uh, uh, Morricone's scores, to listen to The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and that kind of that combined with kind of a Tom Waits junkyard orchestra type feel felt right for Brick. With this, it was it was Rota. I gave him a lot of Nino Rhoda to listen to because I knew that we wanted more melodic themes. And um, that combined with actually 70s folk rock, like the band. That was kind of my main note to him, was to mash up th- th- that kind of a very American feeling rock style with this uh, very melodic rota type stuff. I think I also pointed him towards Cole Porter, just in terms of uh, thinking of catchy melodies. If you translate the what's on that truck, it, it says Waxworks, uh, which is a reference to the the wax in our wings thing that the Diamond Dog says earlier. That was a lot of gasoline right there. That was was a fun day, blowing that out. Uh, Anyway, so Nathan, um, I pointed him in that direction just because it felt like, uh, you know, we wanted to have that kind of seed of American, uh, dusty American quality in the middle of this European, grand European scope and scale. I think Nathan really pulled it off. This is all Zach's work. Nathan's brother in the notebook. Neither can I. Oh, you mean you think maybe she faked it to make the Russian? And this is in Belgrade, all the all the Saint Petersburg stuff is in Belgrade. What we right, Rom? Yes. Bertilucci. Uh, so it took, it, took, it took Zach, I think, about a week to fill up that entire notebook. And you don't see 80% of the pages in it. It's just kind of, um, but it, it's really a beautiful work of art, that notebook. And then we shot the inserts of it and kind of placed everything exactly and figure out what pages he's flipped through. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll
1: wire the money from my account and we'll go get Steven.
0: It's a lot you see the location right here this is an example of the way, the only dressing that we did here besides bringing the car in and shooting them through this filthy windshield which gives this kind of layer of this kind of scrim effect in front of it was the uh, graffiti on the wall back there Jim Clay actually specifically designed that graffiti. The idea behind that, I'll get, again, this is like a very background thing. This is not something you expect someone to look at and say, aha. But the, the very vague psychological effect was we had the graffiti of the wall at the beginning of it. And um, just kind of the idea of the drawing and the artwork and the notion that that's maybe a little very subtle psychological cue that um, we might be still in Stephen's world or we might not be at this point. What, what, what do you do? This is a, a, a Steve Yedlin. who I've mentioned a few times now, a cinematographer who's also one of my best friends. I've known him since freshman year in, in film school, and um, everything we've ever sh- I've ever shot on film, Steve has been behind the camera of um, the lighting that Steve. Um, God damn it that's what did in this I'm, I'm really I'm really proud of his work in this scene specifically that it's something that Steve is very fond of is um, letting the shadows kind of kind of go and especially in a film that's that's a little more light and at this point it's gone a little darker but even even before this um, Steve is never afraid of he's never afraid of letting there be a natural shape to the to the light that he creates and letting letting things fall off to darkness and I've worked really hard to try and give him the freedom and give him the space to not have any concerns of, can we see it? You know, is this too dark? You know, that was, that was never a, a question that kind of that came up with this.
1: I'm so scared. Anything I can imagine finding
0: in there, I'm scared of. I'm going to be here when you come out. Steve and I will, the way that visually that we work is I'll storyboard. After I write the script, I'll take a few weeks and I'll kind of visually write the movie. I'll storyboard the movie out um, shot for shot. Then Steve and I will sit down and I'll kind of, because I can't draw, their are little line drawings. And I'll I'll walk him through it and tell him shot for shot. Um, kind of what I was thinking. Um, and then the real collaboration though happens once we get on the set and once we're faced with the realities of a real space and also with the time constraints of the day, and also uh, specifically the mechanics of how we're going to achieve this achieve the lighting for each of them, That's where the real collaboration was. And that's where Steve um, uh, I really lean on Steve a lot for a lot of the visual, specifics in it um and how everything is actually going to be executed on the screen and this is a this scene is actually a good example of uh of steve's work This is also the our, our major build this is the one big build that we spent money on and this was a big big decision because this was a, a huge percentage of our production design budget went into building this theater set uh and it's just for a couple scenes here at the very end of the movie um, sure.
1: Two days of shoot out of 60, we spent most of our production design budget into building that
0: set. Yeah. But it felt really worth it, and also to have specific things like, you know, the sunset on the 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 sunset on the curtain and and to have the specific geography we wanted for it. This guy with the flashlight right here was Rachel's driver for the entire shoot, Dragon. Also, the exterior of the theater is the first...
1: Location that we found actually in Romania, and was we, it? and we that's when we started the scout uh-huh. we went. And basically we went to Romania you can see because the interior we've built in Serbia, but the exterior was shot in Romania We literally went to Romania for the exterior this exterior and the exterior of the mansion
0: And the uh, and, and the dock the dock. Yeah, yeah, which is right next door, right? right, right. Mark on these last couple of days of shoot, well, these, these two little shots here, because if you read the original script and the verses, what, how this actually plays out, we ended up adjusting how this scene plays in, in post-production and ended up bringing the Diamond Dog back into it with a phone call, and so these were actually... Pickup shots we got a little bit later, but when we were shooting this scene here, Mark was actually sick as a dog. I think he had a fever, he actually had a flu, and he was really miserable. He pushed through it, and uh I think he you can kind of you can probably kind of see it's makeup. We didn't actually beat him up. I didn't actually get Rom to rough him up at all, but you don't really know that. That's true. No! that little the when the gun slides out of Adrian's sleeve that was a little rig that the weapons guys made for him that lights like, the thing from taxi driver where it's on little roller and it actually slides it out of his sleeve i think Adrian swiped it i think he kept it <laughs> after the shoot
1: he's got another gun
0: uh, and these when we when we shot the gun and the flashes where it lights it all up that was, that was something that I, I planned out really specifically and we did that practically. We had a strobe light that they set off every time he pulled the trigger. And then actually I did jump cuts in the editing because it's so dark and everything's moving so quickly you can't really tell. But if you freeze, if you kind of step forward through it, you might be able to tell. I, I basically did jump cuts to get just a frame of the flash in exactly the right place. But those flashes were done practically so that the set would actually be lit up uh, for real. This whole thing of Mark faking, uh, doing kind of an over the top death scene was something that Mark and I came up with on the on the day because we. it was a tricky thing trying to figure out how to play this moment precisely because there's a lot of, everything kind of comes down to it and there's probably some variance in terms of where the audience is at at this point, thinking about whether or not he's faking or not. And whether he rolled back and up that little somersault was a big question throughout the editing because i know it's a cheat i know it's a cheat that because the way we're playing is that he was actually shot and there's no way that a a man could actually do that for real in real life i guess but i guess my feeling was you have to 100 percent buy that bloom would buy that he was faking it otherwise bloom would never go off and 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 leave him and so to me, it was much more important to err on that side of things, to err on the side of a little bit of a cheat, but you're like, okay, he is actually okay. And you're there with Bloom when 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 he goes off. and you're not thinking, you know, God, Bloom's being a real idiot. He's obviously still faking it and is still shot. So that was a little bit of a cheat, but that was the end to which to which that cheat was now.
1: All right, here's what.
0: Tape you know, we had this inner cutting here. Um. This was always planned out, and it's just the the really nice feeling of going from this dark place to this this wide open. And I think the contrast of contrast of Stephen's world to to Penelope's world kind of sets up in a way the contrast of you know, you know this burnout chill of a theater to to going off in the wild blue yonder at the end of it. All right, got it. This was the last. Uh, scene that we shot with these two actors actually which was really nice when we finished shooting this scene Mark and Adrian were both wrapped for the shoot it was a nice it was a nice scene to go out of because I remember with the brick it was the sunset scene with um, Brendan and the pin that was the last shot so the sun went down and we were done we had a cast party and, and it felt appropriate for this movie to have Adrian walk out the door and then we're, we're, we ended, ended in the theater and Mark I think does some, does some really nice work here love you and i'm always amazed that because one of the things that i always wondered was the thing about the blood turning red is such a little throwaway line that's almost just tossed off at the very beginning of the movie and it's the sort of thing where i was always just a little worried that would that play and would it read and it's a testament to how you know how tuned in audiences are maybe with this type of film that the i've have yet to have a single audience i've actually asked at q and a's that i've been at like how many people made that direct connection with the blood turning brown and everyone always catches it nathan came up with this really beautiful cue in the temp score I think I had used uh, a piece from Madame Butterfly, actually. Nathan just kind of knocked it out of the park with this cue. There's a shot coming up here. When I was cutting the scene together, it felt like it just needed, like, one extra little thing. And after he slips a card up his sleeve, there's a shot where he looks out and you see the door slightly creak open. And that shot is actually, that was we didn't intend that while we were shooting. We, I actually stole that from the back half of when the mob guy earlier in the scene runs out of the theater. And it's actually the scene, it's actually the door swinging shut after he goes out. And I reversed it and slowed it down drastically. It's actually slowed down about 50% just to take that little thing and added the, the sound of the creaking in there and cut it in so it looks like Mark is reacting to it. And it gave just kind of that extra little thing for him to play off of and made you feel this it reminded you of the space that he was in. So I think the fact that he's in this on stage in this theater is a big part of what makes um you know makes the thing resonant. And so we shot in Belgrade and we there was originally a lot more dialogue that Rachel had, or kind of this monologue that Rachel has here. And it was something that we spent a lot of time in the editing room massaging exactly how much she was going to say. Less is more ended up being the, the thing that we came down on. You know, he said this thing to me once. He <sighs> said to me, there's no such thing. And there's a whole... Uh, visual thing that's going on too with the sun and then the idea that Penelope is is the sun and then uh, Stephen is kind of underground. And so Stephen's environment's like when you're first in the in the bar in the beginning of it, and very much in Stephen's world, it's underground and it's earth and it's dark. And the same with the theater at the end of it, or on the boat when the brothers are having this, the talk. It's it's earth tones and it's very dark and underground. And Penelope, it's it's bright, it's green, it's it's orange, the orange of the sun. And so that it was really intentional to have this blazing sun right behind her. Actually, if you look through the movie, there's kind of a um, Oh, hell, I'll use the word motif. Why not? Why not? There's a sun motif connected with men, with Penelope. I said it. And you know what, Rom? I'm proud I said it. How do you feel? It's good to know
1: you actually knew what
0: you were doing. I didn't say that. Yeah. No. Did you had an, an idea of what you wanted. Some concept, yeah. Con this costume that she's wearing is... This didn't quite work out because the scene that she wears... the she, There's another version of this costume which is the exact inverse of what she's wearing where the dress itself is black and the fringe is white and she was wearing it in the scene where the curator tells them the well story which was cut. So originally this was supposed to juxtapose against that as kind of the inverse of that emotion but it didn't quite work. And then we're driving off in the sunset with a nice little... Uh, Nice little bookend. And again, Steve Yedlin put this comp of the sky together on his Macbook. And the sun down. And now for the uh, section of the commentary it's going to be dated horribly in less than five years. I'm going to run through all these Twitter questions that people have sent because this is actually pretty cool. So Jarrett Brown asks, how long did it take to decide this would be your next movie? I came up with the basic idea for it um, basically right after we were at Sundance with Brick. Uh Kjul Juice asks, is Rachel Vice as gorgeous in real life as in the movie? Yes, she is more so. Um, Beyond you know, shout out to Beyond E. Shout out to Film Spotting from Monteroso. Uh, let's see here. Bad bad Sean asks that I mentioned Pond Life. LOL <laughs> LOL Laugh out loud. Is Sam wonderful. If that is your name, ask about the zooms in the movie. I, I really like using zooms, actually. Um, were, I used a lot of them in brick out of necessity because we didn't have time to set up do- Dolly Track, and it's just something that I ended up enjoying the, the look of. And so uh, any time we had to add tension to a scene or I wanted a little bit more of a dynamic feel, we would pop the zoom gun on and do kind of a creep, creep zoom. My friend William Goss requested that I have a moment, moment of silence when Rachel's gown opens and you see her butt, which I which I gave him. You're welcome, William. Triflick points out rightly that Ricky Jay is the is the man. Let's see here. Da, 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 da. Orlando Bloom and Raptors, that's an inside joke for Jake McKay. This is so uninteresting. I'm beginning to see why Twitter is not. Uh, Twitter has a has a shelf life. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, let's see here. More nonsense from William Goss. Oh, Cine- Cinescopian asked about talk about working with Ron Bergman. But what can I say about working with Ron Bergman?
1: At least you n- we're not gonna go through the brick credits.
0: There <laughs> I. Like to thank Devin Faraci for making all this possible. Beyond, e asked what it was like working with Rachel Weiss. She's an amazing actress. She was. It was, inc- it was amazing to work with her. Okay, Winstonovich asks about uh, how much research it took to write a worldwide con thing. And um, in terms of all the different locations in it, at least, there was kind of an intentional lack of research. Because the whole point of the perspective that these brothers were showing... Penelope of, of the world, I mean, these places are not anything like the actual European locations. They're, they're kind of like what someone who has never left America would imagine these locations in Europe would be like. And that was kind of intentional and that was kind of the point. So, um, so I did zero research, which was kind of nice. Uh, David Chen actually asked uh, for me to point out every instance of winged or angelic symbolism, which I'm not going to do. And a second question, what is Bloom's first name? It's so completely ridiculous that um, I went the entire movie just calling him by his last name. That's something that always surprised me when people, uh, when that, that catches people.
1: <laughs> it's, the, it's, the most name, asked, it's the most asked questions.
0: Which doesn't, I don't know. He's, he's, he's They don't call him by his first name. They call him by his last name, Bloom. There's the answer. Jack G says, "Talk about the music choices." Right as Nathan starts singing this beautiful last song called "The Fabulist," um, it was a no-brainer for me to work with Nathan Johnson doing the music. He's—I hope I never have to make a movie without him. A more nonsense from William Goss. God, William Goss, are you? You're just on Twitter all the time. You have no life.
1: Well, mm-hmm. uh,
0: Hexacan asks, what made you want to try this type of movie? Was it hard to shift styles from brick to bloom? No, because I had basically been trying to get brick made for six or seven years, and it took a few years to make. I was so sick of it by the end of it. It felt incredibly good just to do something completely different. Um, and a similar thing is happening uh, with the next film, which is a very dark science fiction movie. I've, I've been in in happy happy fantasy land with this film for much too long. It's time to time to get dark, people. And um, violent. Yes, violent with the next one. Uh, Mosi Chiu, as I pronounce it, with a picture of a horse, asked that I name-drop Fantastic Fest, which is one of my favorite film festivals I've attended out in Austin. Mepidrulu, um, I don't know how to pronounce that, but um, asked to explain why I chose the ending I did with Mark dying at the end, uh, and says that they are still inordinately upset over that, and I apologize. And I think I talked a little bit in that section about the choice of going darker with the ending, but, but I apologize to you uh, personally for it. Um, let's see here. Jake McKay points out, quite rightly, that a truly great commentary could run alongside Bloom and Spy Mate, which is the film about the chimp who's a spy, which is a personal favorite of mine. Best animal doing people shit movie ever made, Spy Mate. Uh and it's tr- actually this is kind of like Dark Side of the Moon. You can run this commentary along with Spy Mate and it will make perfect sense and will somehow, if it's possible, make Spy Mate better. But it's not possible because it's a chimp hang gliding within the first five minutes of that movie. Chimp hang gliding. chimp sword fighting a white stunt man dressed as an Arab within the first ten minutes of Spy Mate. True story. Actually happens. Let's see, question referred to Bob Stencil. I don't know what that means. Uh, So astonishingly, asked what color underwear I'm wearing. (laughs) Trick question. You're not wearing. (laughs) So disturbed. Hamburg City is the illest, Mark. Uh, let's see. Why was the flick delayed for so damn long? I don't know if this will still be relevant, but our release date was pushed back a few times. Um, and every time that happens, just, everyone wonders if the movie is awful. And I hope the movie wasn't awful. But that, it was just because, the, just because they had on one date and they thought that date was too crowded. And so they pushed to the next and that date was too crowded. And you'd end up doing the release date shuffle. Work it with me now. I'd like to ask Ron Bergman to take us out here with a well-chosen word. What's it going to be, Ron? It's going to be Bertolucci. <laughs> <laughs> eh. <laughs>